from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our second scripture reading this morning is from the uh, book of Joshua in the Old Testament, chapter 24, verses 1 through 3 and 14 through 15. If you want to follow along, you can find it on page 205 in the Old Testament of your pew Bible. Listen for how God may be speaking to you through this holy word this morning. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your ancestors, Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Now therefore, revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Now, if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I think Joshua knew exactly what he was doing when he chose Shechem as the place, as the city, to deliver his final message. I think Joshua knew exactly what he was doing when he convened the people to share with them his final thoughts and to invite them to renew their covenant with God. Because this place, this city called Shechem, was the place where God first made God's covenant with the people. It was a holy city that Abram traveled to from the east, and God declared to him a promise that, that he would be given this land that his offspring and that his descendants would inhabit it. So what better locale than this city for Joshua to have his renewal sermon preached? As the people would immediately call to mind, as it, Joshua invited them to make a recommitment to God, as the people would then call to mind God's commitment to them. 
As I said last week, Joshua's call for renewal at this particular point in the people's history is somewhat counterintuitive. After all this wandering, people now has a home. The homeless have now experienced a homecoming. The conflicts that that came after their entrance into the land had, have now subsided. And relative peace and prosperity is coming to this people. In shorthand, things are going really well. Things are successful. Things are good. And we usually think that we need renewal when things have lapsed or denigrated. But Joshua is doing something interesting here. Things are good, and he's calling the people to be renewed. He's calling the people to make a recommitment because he knows that when things are going well, he knows that's exactly the time when complacency and arrogance can creep in. The people may lose sight of what they're of the origin, rather, of their success. They, they may lose sight of the fact that it is only because of God's graciousness to them that they are a people in the first place. It's only by God's sustaining power and mercy that they were able to be liberated from Egypt, be sustained in the wandering in the wilderness, and to enter into this promised land, the peace and prosperity they now experience is only a gift of God's grace. We tried to draw a parallel last week between our community and that ancient community, and it's hard to do, but I think there's some similarities, at least in this one way, that we have the wind at our backs now as a congregation. There is a momentum that the Holy Spirit is leading us into ministry and mission Ministries and mission that we've already participated in and new ministries and mission that still await us. And God has been so gracious. God has been so gracious in calling us into this community, in calling us and inviting us to participate in this congregation. How thankful we are that God's grace has been poured out upon us. And so we would do well to hear the words of Joshua that even though the wind is at our back, even though the Holy Spirit is leading us into God's good future and things are going well, now's exactly the time we need renewal. Now is the time to recommit because we know that without that constant recommitment, without that continual conversion to the way of Jesus Christ, we can too become complacent. And we can become arrogant and we can think that we have done this. And God becomes an afterthought. Joshua's farewell speech reminds us of Presbyterian Theology 101. God is God and we're not. And it's God that makes a way. And that it's God that gives us the gift of community. And so it moves us toward humility and a renewal of our commitment to God. We, we framed it in these terms. We're, we're experiencing almost like a Shechem moment as a congregation, remembering the commitments that God has made to us and in our time, in our place, being renewed in our commitment to God.
And so we're in week two of this three-week series on Joshua 24. I, I joked last week that we just skipped the first 23 chapters, all the heartbreak, the hardship, the difficulty in entering the land, and, and Joshua is now giving his final sermon, his parting words to the people. And last week we focused on, on much of the first 15 verses of Joshua 24. And today I only want to hone in on one, just one verse. And it's verse 14, where Joshua challenges the people to serve God in sincerity and faithfulness. To serve God in sincerity and faithfulness. I'm particularly struck by this word, sincerity. Especially in our time and in our place. What does it mean to serve God with sincerity? The Hebrew word is tamim. And it has the connotation of something being pure or something being blameless. In modern terms, when we hear the word sincerity, we, we categorize it into sort of a, a moral construct. Sincerity uh, functions today almost like a moral code. And, and we say someone is sincere when they are free of pretense, when they are free of deceit, when they are free of hypocrisy. Another way to frame it is to say that a sincere person is someone whose inner life and outer life have congruence, right? It's the classic definition of the word integrity. The inner life and the outer life match up. R.J. McGill Jr. is an independent scholar. He's a historian who, who lives in Berlin. And a few years ago, he penned the most comprehensive work a, a large volume on the meaning and usage of this single word, sincerity. Hundreds and hundreds of pages produced, only like an academic can produce them, around this one idea, sincerity. And McGill highlights the first known usage of this word, sincere, and traces it, interestingly enough, back to the Protestant Reformation. The first person to use it in the English language was a man named John Frith. The year was 1533, and up until that point, the word sincere in the English language up until the 16th century was only used to describe objects, right? This water is sincere, it's pure, or this diamond is sincere, it's without fault, and this reformer was the first person known in the English language to use it and apply this word sincere to a person. He actually used it to describe John Wycliffe, who years earlier translated, had the audacity to translate, the Latin Bible into English. And he, of course, was martyred for that. Firth himself was burned at the stake for affirming one of the core convictions of Protestantism and Presbyterianism rooted in our tradition, this idea that our conscience is superior to church doctrine. Well, church folk at that time didn't like that, and he too met his fate burned at the stake. So this word sincere, it's interesting, begins to be utilized during the Protestant Reformation. And it's a, a word used to describe martyrs. 
right? People whose, whose inward convictions are not hid from the world, but are spoken and embody even at the cost of their life. The martyr in this case is sincere. There is integrity between the inner life and the outer life. So McGill notes how sincerity is born in, in, in the moral sense out of the Protestant Reformation. And he traces that history and he traces the traction this moral concept gets over the next few hundred years from that time. That is until the end of the 18th century. When, when all of a sudden, techniques like irony and skepticism begin to appear in the various arts, poetry, the visual arts, theology, and philosophy. Of course, you have the revolutions, you have great wars, you have conflicts, and you have this one philosophical shift. Whereas reason dominated the philosophical landscape, one could reason their way with their own mind to truth. There was a great skepticism, and reason was scrutinized as being something that was limited and something that was purely subjective. And so these big ideas like romanticism and even this, this notion of, of, of a moral sense of sincerity, it began to fade away. It was muted. And so by the beginning of the 20th century and now into the 21st century, we find ourselves living in a culture marked by the impossibility of sincerity. Follow me here. There is a lack of trust. Everybody has an ulterior motive. We are proficient in the three S's, snark, skepticism, and sarcasm. We love irony. We feed off of it. No one is really sincere. No one is really pure. No one's inner life and outer life are congruent. So we've been led to believe. Just think about our political climate here for just a minute. We must. Think of the lack of trust we have in the majority party's candidates. Right? The polls suggest that around 60% plus, 60 plus percent of the nation believes that these two major party candidates are not trustworthy or honest. 60 plus percent. Just another way of saying that they're insincere. This whole election cycle actually has made me reconsider why I'm such a big fan of the Netflix drama House of Cards. For those unfamiliar with that show, it's, it's a political drama where the main character is exposed to the viewer, not always to those constituents who are voting for him or even those around him, but, but exposed to the viewer as a liar, as a master manipulator, as someone who's self-indulgent, self-centered, and even a murderer. And the regular moments in the show, and this, is, this I think is the hook for people, at least it is for me. There are moments in the show where Kevin Spacey, this, he plays this politician, he looks directly in the camera, and everybody else is shut off, and he's talking directly to the viewer. And it's in those moments, if you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's in those moments where he's actually honest. 
where he's sincere, where he, where he says, this is why I'm doing what I am doing. And there's a vulnerability. There is a, there is a picture into his true heart. But it is only heard by the watcher, the viewer. Everybody else around doesn't get an insight into the true nature of his life. Exponentially growing exponentially growing since the Nixon years, we have come to the conclusion that a vast number of our politicians are insincere and the power and the attraction and the hook of House of Cards, I believe, is that it affirms what we have assumed. Sincerity is a lost moral good in our politics. And Kevin Spacey's character proves it to us time and time and time again when he lets us in to his own insincerity. Our collective opinion about these matters transcends politics. It is not just politics. Across disciplines and institutions, many of us have come to the conclusion that sincerity is indeed impossible. George Burns makes a lot of sense to me when he said sincerity if you can fake it, you've got it made. And there is always truth in satire. There's always truth in satire. And maybe the truth is that sincerity, rather, is impossible. And that's why you have to fake it. Maybe that's the truth. This conviction has led us to what some philosophers call critical distance or ironic detachment. Simply put, it's a, it's a philosophical idea that, that people and theories, institutions and objects or experiences must be kept at arm's length. We have to keep everybody and all things and all institutions and anything a politician says or anybody, somebody in authority says, somebody in our family says it, we have to keep it at arm's length, right? They, they all have to be deconstructed. They have to be explained and unmasked. Someone smiles at you and you think, what do they want? Or a personal illustration. I come home from work. The boys' beds are made. Their rooms are clean. They meet me at the front door, ask me how my day is. I say, what do you want? <laughs> a new drug is released, claiming a remedy for this, this ailment, this disease. And we ask, well, who paid for the study? A person on the street asks us for loose change. And we wonder what immoral or unwise act did they commit to end up in this predicament. The pastor pushes the membership class. And the prospective member wonders, am I just being invited to join so I can be added to the donor role? We are a suspicious and skeptical people. We are in many ways like the kids from Coolsville. I'm 0 for 3 on that one. I thought some kids from the 80s would say, <laughs> and laugh at that. Kids from Coolsville, I know I'm going to have to help you here, kids from the 80s and your parents. That was the, the, the town that was home to Fred, Daphne, Wilma, Shaggy, and Scooby-Doo, right? The town of Coolsville. 
every episode without fail in that cartoon had this team from Mystery Inc. challenged by some phantasm, by some ghost, by some monster. They were wreaking havoc in their town or, or neighboring town. And the kids, they, they, would, they would seek to resolve the conflict by unmasking the monster. Shake your heads if you've seen an episode of Scooby-Doo. You know what I'm talking about. Their task was to unmask the monster, but of course it was not a real monster. It was just some person in, in costume. And as I was thinking through this illustration, I, uh, this is a whole nother sermon. It was interesting to me. The reason why they dress up and the reason why they want to scare people away always 99 out of 100 times were, were, were the, the reason for, for them doing this was, was economics, right? Some economic incentive. It was always about money. They were dressing up. That's a whole nother sermon. But this monster, right, this monster, this ghost, couldn't possibly be real. It couldn't possibly be sincere. And so they had to unmask and expose it for what it really was. Scooby-Doo is an exercise in critical distance. You didn't think there was philosophy in Scooby-Doo. There is. It's an exercise in ironic detachment, right? We must keep our distance. Scooby-Doo episodes are like 12 minutes long, right? 80% of those 12 minutes has them doing what? Running away from the ghost. Critical distance. And they're gaining all the while perspective to unmask it. How are they going to unmask this? They've got to run away. They've got to get a, a good perspective. They've got to keep it at a distance. And then the last third, the couple minutes that are remaining, or the last 20% rather, uh, they're, they're actually unmasking the monster and exposing it for what it is. We must de deconstruct that which is in front of us. We must unmask everything. And in Scooby-Doo, as it is in life, we have come to believe that we should approach people and institutions and experiences with a deep, deep skepticism. That everything should be unmasked, including faith. Including God. Our ironic, skeptical, suspicious, critical, and insincere age makes it so difficult, I think, to do what Joshua has asked the people to do. Exercise a sincere service to God. We are challenged to believe that such a faith can even exist. Our cultural formation betrays us even as we're taught to be suspicious of the qualities and characteristics that we have affirmed since those days of Joshua when he climbed the pulpit and talked about the fidelity and faithfulness of God. We have been formed in such a way to be suspicious of even that. One of the dangers of critical distance is the more distance you create between you and the person or whatever it is you are unmasking, the harder it is to love. And that makes sense, right? The more distance you have between you and somebody else, it's, it's hard to love them. There, there's this uh, powerful scene in, in the movie Goodwill Hunting where Matt Damon's character, some of you have seen this film, he's this super genius. Uh, but as a young child, he was exposed to significant 
uh, a significant abuse at the hands of his foster parents. And, and, and in this film, you realize, you quickly realize that he is incapable of seeing his own goodness. He's incapable of seeing his own value. He's incapable of believing that he is lovable. And he begins this relationship uh, with, a, with a character played by Minnie Driver. She's a Harvard student, and she's, she's falling in love with him. And she notices scars on his body, and she begins to ask him where they came from. And his character immediately leans into suspicion, leans into skepticism. If she finds out his true past, then she won't love him. Then she'll reject him just like everyone else has rejected him along the way. But she, of course, loves him in his brokenness and in his potential. She loves him in his pain and his possibility, but he does not believe her. And, and, and in this heartbreaking moment in the film that's actually redeemed later by Robin Williams' character, it has an interesting parallel. In this heartbreaking moment, she reaches for him and if, you see, if you've seen it, you know what he, what he does, right? He literally pushes her away. He creates distance because she can't possibly love him when she gets that close. And so he deconstructs her and he prohibits her from, love, from loving him. This scene from Goodwill Hunting is sort of etched in my memory, and it has been for me for a long time a metaphor for our relationship with God. Right? Many of us are skeptical because we've been formed that way. There, there can't possibly be a God who is relentlessly faithful to us. There can't possibly be a God who forgives us of the things we have done and the things we've left undone. There can't possibly be a God who loves without condition. There can't possibly be a God who redeems my past. There can't possibly be a God who has called me to exist for something bigger than myself. There can't possibly be a church, be a community of people who is genuinely interested in my growth and the fulfillment of God's will in and through my life. The more critical distance we create between God and us, the harder it is to love God and to be loved by God. I'll close with this. I don't think a sincere faith is possible unless we come to terms with the sincerity of God's faithfulness to us. I don't think we can have an authentic and a genuine faith, and I'm not talking about a faith that's naive or sophomoric. I'm talking a faith that leaves room for questions and doubts, but it is genuine and it seeks to overcome the distance and is rooted in the sincerity of God. For we know this sincerity has been expressed in the incarnation of God. God closes the gap and comes to us in and as the person of Jesus Christ. Sincere faith flourishes in the sincerity of God's faithfulness. And if that gap is going to close in our own life, we have to lean into that sincerity. Lean into the truth that Joshua was trying to convey. 
that this God is faithful, that this God is genuine, that God's promises are true. And as we root ourselves in that sincerity of God's love for us, the gap closes. And we begin to see ourselves as lovable. We begin to see ourselves as having a purpose. We begin to see ourselves as part of the mission of God. Sincere faith is rooted in the sincerity of God. May we find ourselves there for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the world and all of God's people say, amen.